want to start tonight with a question. The question is this. What is the best thing you could do for this church? Seriously ponder that question as we go throughout this lesson and also throughout this week. What is the best thing that you could do for this church? Now, I'm assuming we're all on the same page here, reading from the same script. We all want Oldham Lane to thrive. We all want her to make a difference in her community. So what can you do to ensure that that happens? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. It reads, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive the captives, And he gave gifts to people. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is, Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Whenever I go to preach somewhere else, whenever I go to attend a conference or um, a seminar, I'm speaking this weekend at Challenge Youth Conference, I guarantee you somebody will come up to me and say, so how big is Oldham Lane? That's a question that every preacher gets asked. Now, there's a few ways I could answer that, right? And there's a few ways that preachers answer it. Sometimes preachers say, you know, whatever their membership is. So I could say, when somebody asks, how big is Oldham Lane? It was about 1,000 people. But you and I both know we've never had 1,000 people at church on Sunday. We're 1,000 membership-wise, but we don't have 1,000 people here every Sunday. I could answer with our biggest crowd ever. How big is Oldham Lane? Well, one time we had 800 people. Yeah, but that's not every Sunday, right? If I was going to answer it correctly or properly, I would say about 720. Of course, now you have to do pre-COVID, post-COVID, don't you? But we know our numbers. Preachers know their numbers. Some elders know their numbers. Some people know their numbers within the church. But we, we are always numbers-focused, it seems. And that's okay to some degree. I don't think that's a bad thing. Numbers represent people, which represent souls. And therefore, we need to be in tune to what our numbers say. But make no mistake about it. We know our numbers. There's a book on church growth entitled, When a God Builds a Church, and there's an excerpt from the book that states, since 1966, it says, our church has grown from 125 to over 13,500 in worship. 
We have gone through five building programs and two complete relocation projects, the last of which cost over $90 million, including land, construction costs, and architect's fees. We have gone from an annual budget of $18,000 to an annual budget of $18 million. Pretty impressive. That's how we often define church growth, isn't it? For most, church growth, I shouldn't say for most, maybe not most, but for many, church growth is about three things. Bodies, bucks, and buildings. The three Bs. That's what church growth is about. Bigger crowds, bigger budget, bigger buildings. And because we measure success by the three Bs, many churches have some pretty interesting ways in order to bring people in, right? But what if it's not about that? What if it's about something bigger, deeper, and better? What if it's not about the three Bs? What if it's about something else? You know, I've said this before, but I can't stress it enough. This is not the church, right? This building is not the church. The church is not a place that you go to. The church is not an organization. And I say that, I realize that there's some organization that happens here, okay? But the church is more an organism than it is an organization, You can build a robot by organizing a bunch of pieces, but that's not what God has done. This is an organism. This is a living, breathing, moving, growing entity, right? That's what it is. We are an organism rather than an organization. We're alive, or at least we should be. And this organism is attached to a head. And that head, of course, is Jesus Christ. So we grow and we move and develop by starting with the head that moves us, that grows us, that develops us. Without a head, the organism is lifeless. Remove the head and the body will follow. I want you to look with me at Colossians chapter 2. We'll get back to Ephesians. But in Colossians chapter, excuse me, Colossians chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Understand, Paul is addressing a problem. And the problem is false teachers who are teaching false things. These false teachers were promoting things like asceticism and angel worship. They were pushing a doctrine that was nothing more than human philosophy, self-made religion. So Paul's goal was to make certain that the saints in Colossae would remain faithful and not fall prey to the teachings of these false teachers. And I want you to notice his strategy. I want you to notice how he combats the false teachers, their ideologies. He gives Jesus his resume. It's so simple, but I think we overlook it all too often. He reminds the people of who Jesus is, and in the process, he reminds them of who they are. It's so simple, so basic, 
but I love it. You see, I think so often we think that what makes us the best Christians is that we believe right things, that we have right politics, that we make right decisions, that we have right morals, all those kind of things. But it all really goes back to who you're connected to. It goes back to your identity. We think that making disciples is about having better programming or better entertainment. But if that's the reason why people become a disciple, that's going to be the reason that they remain a disciple. And that's a problem, isn't it? What you use to win them is what you have to use to keep them. Paul doesn't get into all that. He starts with Jesus, which is where we should all start. Everything is predicated upon him, a relationship with him, what he has done, who we are as a result. Compared to Christ, the promoters of these false ideologies had nothing to offer. Nothing. So it's, it's really amazing that Paul would start there, but it's highly intelligent, right? You expect nothing less from Paul that he would start with Jesus' resume and he focuses on things like rescued, redemption, forgiveness of sins, firstborn from the dead, fullness of the Father, reconciler. He's spelling out the gospel. That's what he's doing. He's talking about who Jesus is and who we are as a result. And I love this because it's a reminder that remaining faithful starts with Jesus and the gospel. Again, it's, it's very basic but profound. It's kind of like every year at spring training, professional baseball players get together and catchers and pitchers report first and they come together either in Arizona or Florida and you know what they spend their time doing? Fielding ground balls, throwing the ball to first base. They even put the ball on a tee and work on their swing. Doesn't get any more basic than that. They get back to the basics every year. These are guys, some of them making millions upon millions of dollars out there hitting off a tee because the basics are that important. Sometimes you have to just get back to ground level and the things that made you who you are. You know, Paul talks about that, to be a faithful church family. He says you got to remember the basics. To avoid the threat posed by false teachers, go back to the basics Paul does just that. He goes back to Jesus and the gospel because that's what defines us. It's the gas that keeps the vehicle running. And then notice verses 21 and following. He says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So Paul starts with Jesus. And then he turns to who we are, as well as who we were, formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, now reconciled, holy and blameless, beyond reproach. He's appealing to their sense of identity. He's reminding them of who Jesus is, what he has done, and who they are because of it. They were a new creation. They had been empowered to live a new kind of life. And you can keep reading through Colossians, and you can see where Paul encourages these saints to allow their new humanity to be shown in every aspect of their lives. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, Colossians 3.16. And as Paul is spelling all this out, he throws this into the mix. He is also head of the body. The church. Why is that significant? Because it's a reminder. It's a reminder that without Jesus, there is no organism. He is the reason for all of this. 
And so when the church faces persecution, when it faces pressure, adversity, false doctrines, whatever, we have to look to the head. Without Christ, we're like that rattlesnake that has its head cut off. I'm sure you've experienced that. You cut the head off, and what does the snake do for quite some time afterwards? It continues to uh, move and squirm around. It's almost like it's still alive, right? Without a head, we're not going anywhere. We may move, we may be active, but we're aimless. So, all that set up to get to verse 15 of Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ. Now, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is talking about uh, our identity in Christ. The last three chapters in Ephesians is talking about our activity in Christ. And chapter 4 is a pivotal point. That's where the movement happens. So Paul has been talking about who we are in Jesus. Now he's going to talk about because of who we are in Jesus, this is what you should look like. This is what your identity should produce, right? He reminds these Christians and us in the process about the gospel, about the grace of God, about our hope in Jesus Christ. This is the message that must always be on our lips. Paul says you must constantly be speaking the truth. What truth are we talking about here? Well, he defines it for us. The truth that Jesus is Lord, that he has rescued you, that he is your only hope. That's the truth that should always be on our lips. That's the truth that we should be speaking in love. It's the truth of the gospel. There's a lot of different forms of truth that we like to hang our hat on. That's the truth that Paul's talking about. The truth. Jesus, the gospel, how it has changed us, how it can change you. Truth and love go hand in hand. Sharing the truth of the gospel should naturally be combined with a heart of love, an expression of love. It isn't enough to simply talk about Jesus' rule and reign. We must do so, as Paul states in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And when we are truly transformed, it will transform the way that we speak and the words that we use, and we will speak the truth in love. Paul mentions in verse 32, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So here's Paul's whole point. Speaking the truth in love is about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ while living out the love of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's not, that's not how we always do, but that's how we should be doing this is that we should be living out the gospel and teaching the gospel to others with a heart of love. That is the gas that keeps the vehicle running. That is the motivator. That is the catalyst. That we have a heart of love that expresses itself in Christ-like deeds and Christ-like speech. We speak the truth in love. Now, why is this one of those verses that we would consider often taken out of context or misused and abused? Because all too often, Christians feel like there's a tension between truth and love. That I can't really speak the truth without being somewhat condemning and maybe even firm or harsh. Some people even try to justify speaking without as much love by saying, 
you know, well, I, I just told them the truth. They just didn't want to hear it. You know, I just tell it like it is. You know, it's just the way I am. They just didn't want to hear it. No, you were rude. And you need to understand that. You're not suffering for righteous here, righteousness here. You spoke in a way that was not loving and not caring, and that's your problem. That's not their problem. Or what happens is maybe we default to love at the expense of truth. And because we don't want to hurt somebody, because we don't want to broach the topic, we just err on the side of love. Well, you know, that's just them. I love them anyway, and we don't ever bring up an issue, an issue that's vital to the salvation of their soul. So we assume that there's this tension, that you can't be too truthful because if you are, you're going to sacrifice love. But if you're too loving, you're going to sacrifice truth. But that's nowhere near what Paul was saying. The two should naturally go together. There's not a dichotomy here. That, that would be a false dichotomy. Truth and love go hand in hand. And if you're someone who is preaching the truth and repelling people, you need to look inwardly, not outwardly. That's a you problem. At the same time, if you're speaking and, and, and you're, you're, you're sharing the love of Christ, but you're never really landing the plane, that's a you problem. That's, that's an issue. The two should naturally go hand in hand. We think that we need to resolve the tension, right? That we have to strike some sort of balance here. There's no balance to strike. There's no tension. Truth and love naturally go hand in hand. When you identify with Christ, when you find your identity in Christ, it's going to express itself in loving truth. Look, I've said this before, but if everybody hates us, something's wrong, folks. If we're going around sharing the gospel and everybody hates us, something's wrong. But if everybody loves us, something's wrong. Not everybody's going to love you when you share the truth, even when you share it in love. But it's not our job to make the gospel acceptable. It's our job to make the gospel accessible, right? And that's an important point to remember. You're not a failure if you preach the truth in love and they don't come to, to Christ. You've done your job. And certainly, the goal anytime we share the gospel is to hopefully see the person turn around their lives and want to change their lives and give it to Christ. But our role is to preach the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. The bigger problem is not a lack of love or a lack of truth. The bigger problem is that we're trying to resolve a tension that shouldn't even exist. Truth and love should exist in perfect harmony. It's not either or, it's and both. There's no balance to achieve because the two are perfectly melded together. The person who is ruled and reigned by Jesus will naturally be both loving and truthful. The good news is always fresh on their hearts and their lips. Their ultimate goal is to be like Jesus and to help others be like Jesus. That's Paul's whole point. Look at verse 13 again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Folks, that's church growth. Right there is church growth. This is the model that church growth is patterned after. The model is Christ-likeness. You know, we, we kind of, in the church, follow the model of field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And we think if we build the elaborate buildings and if we have all the programming and all that, they will come. 
That's partly true. If you build it, they will come. If you build you. If we build ourselves up. If we seek to be more like Jesus. It all starts here. Then, more than likely, not more than likely, hopefully they will come. Unfortunately, some still won't. But if we want people to come, we don't start by building this. We start by building this. Who we are, what we're about, finding our identity in Christ, speaking the truth in love. That's what Paul's driving at. He's encouraging us to build one another up by speaking the truth in love to one another first because that's what promotes unity. That's a major theme in Paul's writings is the unity of the church to be stronger as a body, to strengthen ourselves, to withstand the attacks of the devil. That equips us to go out and make and grow disciples. We often look at Ephesians 4.15 as outwardly focused. It's inwardly focused. He's talking to these Christians first and foremost. You need to be speaking the truth and love to one another first. To avoid all this false teaching and these man-made ideologies, and you build yourself up, then we can go out and build up the kingdom. You know there's four types of churches. The first one's a dead church, okay? Not much explanation there, right? A dead church is a church that's not alive. Now, a dead church doesn't always have empty pews and cobwebs everywhere. A dead church can have a whole lot of people and a whole lot of activity, but it's lost its first love. It's no longer connected to the head, right? doesn't matter how big your church is if the devil's running it. So there can be a dead church even though it's active and full. So a dead church is the first type of church. Then there's the inside-in church. And the inside-in church is mostly just focused on maintenance, just keeping everything running smoothly, almost like keeping the status quo. It's about procedure. It's about protocol rather than people and proclaiming. It's zeroed in on rules and regulations at the expense of relationships. That's the inside-in. Then you have the outside-in church. This church goes after the unchurched, which is always a good thing. They're seeking to save the lost, but in their efforts, they really ignore their core. They don't focus as much on their members and so they cater more to the unchurched and they customize their worship to fit an audience that is not their core and by the way if you look at Paul's writings and you look throughout the New Testament that was never the model who was worship for not the unchurched the saints do we want the unchurched to come in here and be moved by our worship absolutely but worship's for God and it's for the saints that's the model So the outside-in approach is another model. But finally, you have the inside-out church. And I believe that this is the church that Paul would have us to be. I believe this is the church that our Lord would have us to be. The one that grows inwardly with the intent of growing outwardly. It's the type of church that equips the saints to make and grow disciples. And that's the type of church I want to be. And hopefully you do as well. You see, we have all these these programs and all these seminars and all these blogs on church growth. And I think we're missing the point sometimes. Church growth starts right here. Right here with you. Our core. We grow the core. We equip the saints to go out and grow the kingdom. 
It's a simple model, but I believe it's a biblical one. And I believe that's what Paul's talking about. You start in here, you speak the truth and love to one another, and then you go out and you speak it to others. You show them your identity and how it has changed you, so hopefully they'll want to come and change their identity as well. I want Oldham Lane to be a living, breathing organism, not some stale, lifeless organization. And I think we are. I think we are a living, breathing organism. I really do. I think that we are in a good place. I think we have a good thing going. I want us to emphasize growth here so that we can inspire growth out there. And for this to happen, we have to filter everything that we say and everything that we do through the two greatest commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We talk about it all the time in our new member orientation. The great command, the great commission. That's what we are to be about. So I want to ask you this evening, what's the best thing that you can do for this church? Can I answer for you? Grow. It's the best thing you can do for this church is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're here to help you with that. We offer an invitation tonight if we can help you. If you're struggling, if you need prayer, you want to study the Bible with someone, ready to put on Christ in baptism, if you have a need, let us know. As you go throughout this week, if you have a need, let me know. Let one of the ministers know. Let one of the elders know. We are here to help you. This is a family, and as we said this morning, it takes all of us. But it all starts here. Let's get it right here so we can get it right out there. Dave's going to lead us in song. If we can help you, come as we stand and as we sing.